0: I'm Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are picking up where we left off with Dr. Stephen Nemish. We've been talking about communion, also called the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, and he's been presenting a case for memorialism. Today, we begin with the words of institution, which Jesus gave at the Last Supper. What did he mean when he said, this is my body? Next, I asked Nemish about church history and what he's learned there. He talks about the Didache, Ignatius of Antioch, and Cyril of Jerusalem. Then I asked him how we should engage with the Eucharist today. His answer there may surprise you. Here now is part two of our conversation, episode 507, Eating Christ's Flesh, with Dr. Stephen Nimish. Let's move on to the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you heard this story. It might be apocryphal, probably is, but I think it was, I don't remember what year, but the the Marburg Colloquy, when uh, Luther and Zwingli got together and... Seemed like maybe they could unite their movement. They had a sharp disagreement on the Eucharist, and allegedly, he took off his shoe, Luther did, in a fit of rage and started banging on the table with it, shouting, He said, This is my body. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I wonder if you could just kind of walk us through when Jesus says, This is my body, this is my blood in the, the words of institution, how do you interpret those?
1: Well, in this chapter, I draw from Peter Martyr of Amigli. And one of the arguments that he gives in favor of a symbolic reading of this text is, well, first of all, he says, look, there are a lot of places in scripture where people use the word is, and it means signifies or represents. For example, when Joseph explains Pharaoh's dreams, you know, he says the seven healthy cows are whatever, seven years. right? Obviously a cow is not literally a year, but you can express this relation of representation using the word is. If I were to point to a dot on a map and say, this is Phoenix, I don't mean that the city of Phoenix is literally black ink on a piece of paper. I mean that this black ink on this piece of paper represents Phoenix. All the time in language, it's true in English, in Hebrew, in Greek, whatever, in language, you can use the word is to mean represent because representation is a kind of being, you know, within the framework of like a a ritual that we're engaged in. When Christ says, this is my body. Peter Martyr Vermigli says, look, on the one hand, he's holding up bread. On the other hand, he says that this is his body. Now, when we have two substantives or nouns that are being connected in a sentence, and those things considered on themselves are too radically different from each other in order to be literally identified, you have to understand the sentence as one of signification, one of analogy. So, for example, if I were to say that when Christ explains his parable, the word of God is the seed. But obviously, the word of God cannot be the same thing as a seed. They're two radically different kinds of things. So I cannot understand that to be a literal statement of identity. I understand him to be saying that they are the one is the other through signification or through analogy. The word of God is the seed in the sense that the seed represents the word of God or the seven fat cows are seven years of plenty. The fat cows represent seven years of plenty. Same thing. Also, you can take a look at bread and you can see that that is not a human body. Right, The two things, bread and human flesh, are just totally different kinds of things. They're not commensurate. They cannot be identified with one another. It's natural to understand that Jesus is speaking figuratively because he calls something by a name that cannot normally be applied to it. Right, He calls bread flesh, and it can't be flesh, and so therefore it has to be signification. This is something that we pick up all the time. We We intuitively recognize figurative language like this whenever we notice a difference between what somebody says interpreted literally and what we actually see is actually manifest so for example if a man walks into a son's room if you were to walk into your son's room and you say this room is a pigsty and your son looks around and he doesn't find any pigs he doesn't see a trough he doesn't see a farmer coming by to drop corn into the trough once he appreciates that his room actually does not look like a pigsty he understands you to be speaking figuratively you don't mean that it's literally a pigsty you mean that it's filthy right that it's disorderly we recognize this sort of thing all the time without even thinking about it because we notice that if we interpret what you're saying literally The world plainly does not look like that, right? Like what you're saying literally interpreted doesn't match with what we can see. And so I have to interpret you figuratively. The same thing is true in the case of Christ. It is perfectly natural when a grown man takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body to understand him to be speaking figuratively because you can see that the bread is bread and not a body. It's not flesh. It's it's not his body. It's something that he's holding with his body. Yeah, he didn't
0: take a knife out and cut a piece of flesh off his arm or something, right? He he took a piece of bread off the table. I mean, those are very different acts.
1: (laughs) Right. One of the arguments that I give is that this is just like a very natural and intuitive way of reading this text. And it, it, it would really take, I think, some work to overcome that initially plausible reading that Christ is speaking figuratively. Now, one of the other arguments that I give in this connection, I interact a lot with Brent Petrie, who's a Roman Catholic scholar. He wrote a book on the Eucharist, and he tries to connect the Eucharist with the Passover ritual, which is a time-honored tradition of interpretations. Zwingli makes much of this. I argue in my book that connecting the Eucharist with the Passover ritual actually supports a memorialist tradition, because just as the Passover ritual is a memorial celebration of an event that occurred a long time ago, and it involves, to some extent, a kind of a reenactment of what happened on that night. But you're not literally traveling back in time. You're just representing all the all the things that happen through you know, the items that are on the table. So also with the Eucharist, right? We're not traveling back in time when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but we are representing a past event and recreating it or reenacting it in a limited extent by following the pattern that Christ sent and eating, you know, that Christ established and eating bread and drinking wine together. Now, Brandt Petrie says that you can find speculations in the rabbinic literature to the effect that when the Jews would celebrate the Passover, they would mystically make the Exodus event present, you know, in some way and participate in it. Now, my own opinion is that this language of presence and participation, these are like theological words that people use when they wanna suggest something big, but who knows what they mean? What does it mean to be present? What does it mean to participate, right? What exactly are you saying? In English, there are two ways of talking about presence, right, at least two ways. You can say that something is present to a person, or you can say that something is present by a person. And I'll give you an example. Suppose you're in a coffee shop and you're engrossed in thought. Uh, let's say you're reading a book about the Exodus, okay? And somebody sees you at the door and calls out your name, but you don't hear them. Because you are reading and you're thinking about the Exodus, the Exodus event is present to you. That means that it's the object of your attention, right? So presence to means what a person is thinking about. That person who is right there next to you calling it your name from the door, that person is present by you, right? Because they're there where you are. They're actually there apart from your thinking about it. But notice that the Exodus event is not present by you, because when you read about it, you don't travel back in time and really experience it. You're just thinking about it, right? So it's not present by you. It's not happening then when you're reading about it. It's just that it's present to you in the sense that you're thinking about it. Now, your friend is present by you, but he is not present to you because you don't notice him. You don't hear him call out your name. And so he's not present to you, even though he's present by you. So this distinction between presence to and presence by presence to means it's the object of your attention. It's what you're focused on. And presence by means that it's there, you know, apart from your attention, apart from what you, what you're aware of. When Petrie says that the Passover is a way of making the Exodus event present, what does he mean? Does he mean present to or does he mean present by? I agree that, you know, every reenactment is a way of making a past event present to us. People who take part in civil war reenactments are trying to make you know, the events of the civil war present to them, they're trying to focus their attention on them. When we read scripture, we're trying to make past events present to us. We're trying to think about what happened when Jesus went up to Jerusalem or whatever. I think that when we celebrate the Eucharist, we are trying to make Jesus's sacrifice present to us, right? We are trying to contemplate the event of his death, right? So we're trying to uh, make his present, make him present to us, but it doesn't follow that he has to be present by us. He doesn't have to be really be there where we are. One of the problems with Petrie's treatment is that he doesn't recognize this distinction between presence to and presence by. Um, and he quickly assumes that making present is a matter of making present by, and that's not true. You know, Things can make things present to us. There's one more point I want to mention. I don't wanna to say too long on this point, but he also quotes this uh, passage from, oh my gosh, I forget the rabbinical document, um, but basically it, it describes the way that the, the Jews are supposed to celebrate the Passover every year. And in this document, the rabbis say that the father of the household has to say, you know, when he talks about this, this is what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt, right? And it's not, this is what the Lord did for our fathers. It's this is what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. So Petrie looks at this language and he says, look, even people who lived hundreds of years after the exodus took place have to talk about it as though it happened to them. He assumes that they thought that the exodus was a way of sort of mystically participating in, in this event. Um, you know, somehow we are connected to this Exodus event and I partake in it, you know, in a real robust way, mysteriously. On this point, I think that Petrie is just not reading carefully enough um, because notice the language that the Father. He says, this is what the Lord did for me. Okay, so to the extent that the Exodus event is being made present, is being made present as past. So it's not, this is what the Lord is doing for us now, right? When you celebrate the Passover, they don't say, this is what the Lord is doing for us now. He's liberating us from Egypt. That would be a way of like trying to make the event present right now. But the way that they talk about the event is as past, you know, this is what the Lord did for me. So it's already done. The, The Exodus event is being remembered as past. It's just that the father of the family is talking about it as though somehow he was involved in it. He was there somehow, but the Passover itself is not making him present then. He is talking about it as if he already was present then in some way. My own suggestion in my book is that this is just a way of talking about tightening the bonds between the individual Israelite and the people of the historical people of Israel, right? When I talk about the Israel, the exodus as something that happened for me and not only for my ancestors, then I'm connecting myself to them. And I'm saying I'm a part of this people, right? So I'm binding myself to God, so to speak, by understanding the exodus to have happened for me and not only for my parents. So I think that the the point of that language is to inspire Israelite consciousness in the individual Jew. It's to get the individual Jew thinking about himself as somebody for whom God liberated the people from Egypt. But it's not a matter of time travel, right? The the Exodus event itself is being remembered as past. So they're not talking about it as if they're there now. They're talking about it as if it already happened. Petrie's arguments from this sort of rabbinic interpretation of the Passover, I think he's just not um i don't think that what he says makes sense of the text so similarly the eucharist is not a matter of going back to the moment of christ's sacrifice and being there present somehow there's no way to make sense of this like the the reason why most of the discourse about this is so vague is because actually it makes no sense what they're proposing is a kind of time travel (laughs) that we are just totally unaware of and that makes no difference on our experience but somehow we're time traveling i think that that's nonsense
0: but we can't imagine ourselves You know, we can we can travel in our minds, so to speak, and like imagine Jesus sitting there with the other disciples. The words that he said, we have the words that he said. We we can uh, have faith that, in a sense, we are connecting to that historical event. It it's not really mystical, you know. It's more of a um, a a mental exercise, if that makes sense, like a meditation.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, what we are doing is remembering christ's person and his sacrifice and reappropriating that to ourselves and forging our identity around it i'm saying okay by taking this bread and by drinking this wine i'm saying this is who i am i am a person for whom christ died i am a person this this is my fundamental reality is the fact that christ died for me this is how i'm going to define myself Um, and so you can do that that's all very good i'm all for that i just think that when you introduce these notions of real presence and participation and and this other stuff it's just it confuses things it becomes unintelligible what's actually happening and i think there's just no reason to do all that we don't need all that it's enough to simply understand myself to be someone for whom christ died that that is powerful enough.
0: yeah i mean it's not only that we don't need all that it's it's that the edifice required and the, the sort of duct tape required to hold together any kind of coherent metaphysical explanation of real presence is so fraught that, you know, we're just better not to have, like, it's not necessary. And like, there's nothing even there that's like really compelling uh, as far as making sense of it other than, okay, just take it on faith. Well, okay. Should I take it on faith that your interpretation is more correct than what the text appears to be saying? If we just read it without your traditional interpretation uh, you know, I think that's really the the question a lot of us have to ask. I wonder if we could delve into church history a little bit. Sure. Talk to us about the Didache, because, you know, that's such an early document, and it's so interesting, and it does have that lengthy Eucharistic prayer that is very Jewish-sounding. What, what did you find there with the Didache? Uh,
1: I think that the most notable thing about the Didache is that it's has no notion whatsoever that the bread and the wine are Christ's body and blood, even in a symbolic way. So it doesn't even say that they're symbols. It just does not connect the bread and the wine to Jesus's body and blood at all. What actually is happening in the DDK is that the community is gathering and celebrating a meal. And at a certain point in the meal, when they eat the bread, they say a certain prayer and they thank God for the salvation that he accomplished through Christ. First, they start with the wine, right? So they start with the wine and they thank God for the wine, and they thank him for the holy vine of your servant David, uh, which people interpret as the salvific work of Christ. Then, at a certain point, they eat the bread. They say, as the grains of wheat that were scattered on the hill were gathered into one to make this bread, you know, so gather all your church, unite the church, basically. Uh, And then they eat the bread. And then it says something interesting, after you have been filled, okay, so when they're celebrating the Eucharist, they are not just having a morsel of bread and some wine, they're eating a proper meal. Okay, so after everybody's full, after the meal is done, then say this prayer and the prayer has two elements it's a prayer of thanksgiving for the creation and for the fact that god provides for our material needs through the created order and then it's a prayer for the salvation thank you for the eternal life and the knowledge and the immortality that we have through your servant jesus and then it's a prayer for the unity of the church right unite the church in your coming kingdom and and gather it into one Uh, and then the prayer is over and that's it that's the whole process of the Eucharist, as far as the Didache is concerned, right? You're sitting down to have a meal. At some point, you pray for the wine. At some point, you pray for the bread. And then at the end, you say a prayer for all these things. But the whole thing is one of thanksgiving. There's only thanksgiving to God for various things. And then there's a petition uh, that the church be united in God's coming kingdom. There is no mention, there is no connection between the bread and the wine and Jesus's body and blood. There is no notion that the bread and the wine become Jesus's body and blood or that we're eating Jesus's body and blood. It's simply a meal, and at certain points in the meal, we have the ability to say thank you. Now, it is true that in Chapter 14 of the Didache, the celebration of the Eucharist is called a sacrifice. And so people are told to reconcile. If there are any people in the in the church who are at conflict with one another, you know, reconcile with each other before uh, in order that your sacrifice may be pure. And some people think, oh, well, it's a sacrifice. So that must mean that something, you know, you know, Christ somehow is present because there can only be one sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of Christ. But this is not true. Andrew McGowan makes the point that there were many kinds of sacrifices in the ancient world, and not not every sacrifice had the purpose of propitiating sins or anything of that sort. For example, there were sacrifices of thanksgiving, and you can read about these in Leviticus chapter 7. Um, Jacob Milgram's uh, commentary in the Yale Anchor Bible Commentary series on Leviticus is very good, and he notes that the thanksgiving sacrifice was offered to give thanks to God for being delivered from danger or from some sort of situation of trouble. Uh, and some rabbis even speculate that in the age to come, only the thanksgiving sacrifice will remain. All the other sacrifices will be done away with. I argue in my book that the Didache is presenting the Eucharist as a thanksgiving sacrifice. It is not in competition with Christ's sacrifice. Uh, it's not a matter of propitiating sin at all. What this Eucharist is, is a matter of saying thank you to God for the created order and for the salvific worth of Christ. And that's basically what you get off the pages even if it didn't call itself a sacrifice you could still get that from the fact that it's a meal in which there are ritual prayers offered to god in thanksgiving for things and of course this, the word itself eucharist Eucharistia, means thanksgiving uh, in greek so the didache presents the eucharist or the lord's supper as a thanksgiving sacrifice in which christians gather they have a meal they offer prayers of thanksgiving to god for the salvation that's been accomplished in christ and for the created order And then they offer a petitionary prayer also for the unity of the church, and that's it. There is nothing else whatsoever in the Didache about this. Now, this is also one of the earliest descriptions that we have of what a church service looks like. It's more detailed than anything we have in the New Testament, and it seems clear that everything is focused around this meal. This meal is like the whole reason that they're gathering in the first place. And so, you know, that's why in I think in the Eucharist book, but also in another book of mine, I talk about the early church as a Jesus meal club, because that's what they were, right? They you know, they were a bunch of followers of Jesus, and their whole their big thing was to get together and have a meal together.
0: Yes, and, and, and meals you know. were a really big deal when you're living at sustenance. Uh, to get together and have a meal is is yeah. really special, you know. Uh, right. So yeah, I appreciate that emphasis. What else in church history could you mention as uh, in, a, in kind of a brief way that would have an impact on understanding the Eucharist for early Christians?
1: If I were to talk about any specific authors, I already mentioned Irenaeus a little bit earlier, so I won't talk about Irenaeus. If I were to talk about specific authors, I would I would not be able to be too concise and already I have trouble with being concise, but I will try to give the general outlines of my arguments, right? The, I have two chapters on the early church uh, doctrine of the Eucharist and I'll give my general arguments. One argument that I give in that section is that the a lot of these early church figures do not talk in the way that later historical proponents of the real presence doctrine do. They can talk about the Eucharist, for example, and never mention that Christ's body and blood are being consumed. Justin does this in his dialogue with Trifo. Now, if you, now what's interesting is that later historical proponents of the real presence tradition, like John of Damascus, will make it clear that the whole point of the Eucharist is to consume Christ's flesh and blood in a real way, right? That's what everything is. And so John of Damascus will even say at one point that the bread and the wine are not figures of Christ's body and blood. God forbid, he says, uh, but the actual deified body and blood of Jesus Christ later proponents of the real presence doctrine make it a point they emphasize that they underline it three times that this is really Christ's body and blood earlier sources do not talk about that they can talk about the eucharist at length and never mention it at all and so this suggests to me that it's just not a part of their doctrine right if i'm going to talk about something i'm going to mention what i think is most important about it but you know justin doesn't mention that what he does talk about at the eucharist in the dialogue with Trifo is the fact that it's a Uh, a commemoration of christ's sacrifice it's you know prayers of thanksgiving are offered to god but he doesn't mention anything about christ's body and blood or anything like that and so it it, this suggests to me strongly that it's just not a part of his doctrine one of the other arguments that people make is that you know these early authors talk about the bread and the wine being or becoming the body and blood of christ Uh, and so people assume that they have to take that language literally like how figurative can you take it the point that i make in my book is that actually this assumes that the sacramental discourse of the early church figures has to be interpreted metaphysically in other words when they are talking about the sacraments we have to talk about we have to interpret what they say as though they were talking about what things really are and so when they say that the bread and wine real you know are the body and blood of christ that are there we have to take that literally literally they are the body and blood of christ what they become but i argue that this is not true there's another way to interpret sacramental discourse namely uh, symbolically or phenomenologically you know, think about the difference. You know, when the director calls for action, you know, the actor becomes Hamlet. right? Does that mean that this actor really becomes Hamlet, a fictional person? No, it means he becomes Hamlet within the ritual of theater, right? Once the director calls for action, you're no longer, whatever your name is, Joe you know, Schmoe actor, you become Hamlet once the director calls for action. But notice I can use the word become there, but I don't mean literally. I mean symbolically. I mean representationally. Within this ritual of theater, I become Hamlet or for example once i i take a piece of paper and i draw some symbols on it and i draw a dot at one point and i write the letter phoenix under that dot right previously it was a piece of paper and you know after i write the letter phoenix under the dot the dot becomes phoenix literally a dot does not become the city of phoenix but it becomes to represent phoenix right so within this this ritual of map making that dot becomes phoenix after i write the word phoenix under it the same thing can be happening in the in the Eucharist, right? When they say that the bread and the wine, we give thanks for the bread and the wine, and they become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, or the Eucharist of Jesus Christ, body and blood, that become does not have to be translated or interpreted literally, metaphysically, as if they're talking about what things are really. It can be interpreted in terms of the meaning that these things take for us now that we're participating in the ritual. And so, you know, Peter Martyr Vermigli makes this proposal also. When these early church figures talked about the sacraments becoming Christ's body and blood, They mean that language, not literally, but in terms of their signification. There's a certain moment in the ritual after we pray for the elements in which we no longer think of them as bread and wine, just ordinary food. We think of them as the representations of Christ's body and blood. Okay, so from that moment on, there's a change in the way that we think about them, the way that we treat them, the way that we relate to them. You know, we're engaged in this ritual and there's a moment now where this is no longer an actor. It's Hamlet. Uh, this is no longer a dot on a piece of paper it's phoenix this is no longer bread it's christ's body uh, but in terms of its meaning its representation its significance for me not really you know that's that's a second point that i make that there's a second way of interpreting the sacramental discourse of these early figures that a lot of times gets ignored which is people don't even recognize it it becomes obvious like this is a legitimate way to read them when you read for example irenaeus talking about the sacrificial system in the old testament as being You know, composed of images and types that are supposed to lift the religious participants mind from material things to eternal things right so already he understands that religious rituals use material things but the whole point of it is contemplative the whole point of it is to see symbolic significance in the material things that are in front of you that help your mind to contemplate you know eternal realities you know Irenaeus is a part of this general trend in mediterranean religion around that time in history a trend of spiritualization Right. In olden times, people thought that real mystical, magical stuff was happening during the sacrifices. And then in this period of history, there was a trend towards spiritualizing sacrifice. The true sacrifice is not the animal that you kill and put on the altar, but it's your heart. The true sacrifice is the way that you form your character in response to God. And so everything is sort of like spiritualized and brought into the domain of ethics. And Irenaeus falls firmly within this trend. He's more concerned about what's on the inside than about what's on the outside. The outside is just a vehicle for turning your attention inwards and contemplating, uh, you know, the uh, interior realities.
0: So would you say that in your investigation of church history, you just didn't find any clear evidence of people that believed in real presence in the first few hundred years?
1: Well, there is the case of Cyril of Jerusalem, who is in the 300s. And Cyril of Jerusalem represents an arguably clear case uh, of belief in the real presence. He thinks that the bread and the wine really are Christ's body and blood. They're not just figures thereof, but they really are. But what I suggest is that, but Jerusalem admittedly is in the 300s. Okay, Irenaeus is in the 100s. Tertullian is in the 200s. The Didache is like within the first century. Ignatius of Antioch, interestingly enough, or is a kind of uh, ambiguous case. Ignatius is really hard to tell. Everything that Ignatius says can be interpreted in a real presence way, but also in a memorialist way. So he is just like a perfectly ambiguous figure that can be taken both ways.
0: Yeah, I've got his uh, letter to the Smyrnian six two. The Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's like, well, Ignatius, buddy, what do you mean by is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the other problem yeah. with Ignatius, just to, to muddy the waters a little bit, is that his corpus is a mess. We know it's been tampered with. We just don't know to what degree. Right. And you, you know, you have the middle recension, the long recension. I forget the name of the scholar. Somebody just came out with a monograph about the middle recension, arguing that it's Christologically corrupted from the 4th century debates. Uh, everyone pretty much agrees the long recension is Christologically corrupted by Arians, But um, you know he, he's making the case that the Nicene party monkeyed around with the middle recension. And so you know, if, if real presence was starting to become popular or accepted in the 4th century, it's fair game that somebody might mess around with Ignatius on that one too. Uh, so I think with Ignatius in particular, out of all the church fathers, uh, I, I would—if I'm building a case for something—I want to lean on him the least, uh, just mm-hmm. because we know that his his corpus is so contested.
1: So interestingly enough, about Ignatius, um, I interpret Ignatius by way of analogy with Tertullian. So I I argue in my book that Tertullian offers what I call an argumentum ad eucharistiam, a sort of an argument from the Eucharist against Marcionite Christology was said that Christ did not have a true body. And uh, this argument comes in uh, Tertullian's book against Marcion uh, book Four, chapter 40, I think. And Tertullian says there, you know, how can you say that he didn't have a body when at the last supper, you know, he took bread and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body. That is a figure of my body. Right. And Tertullian says, there cannot be a figure if there wasn't a reality. So, Tertullian's argument there is Jesus would not have left a figure of his body in the bread and wine of the Eucharist meal if he did not have an actual body, because there would be nothing for him to represent. There would be nothing for there to be a figure of. So Tertullian's argument is that there has to be a, a reality that the figure is connected with. So when he presents the bread as a figure of his body, uh, therefore, he must have had a real body and not a phantom body like the, the Marcionites were saying. Um So I think that something similar can be going on in the case of Ignatius. Ignatius in his letter to the Smyrnaeans is concerned with people who denied that Christ was truly human and that he really suffered. And he says, look at this, uh, look at the consequences of their theology. They don't care for the poor. They don't help the widows. uh, They refuse to partake of the Eucharist because they don't believe that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Understood in this context, it is not out of place to understand ignatius to be saying like they don't believe that christ had actual body and blood and so they don't partake of the eucharist where we have the figures of christ's body and blood now ignatius admittedly does not use the word figure but the same argument could have been given right because again the word is can be taken in both ways it can mean literal being it can mean representation or signification Um, and so really all that ignatius is doing is repeating the biblical formula this is my body right the eucharist is christ's flesh all he's doing is repeating the formula he doesn't interpret it at all um, except as inconsistent with a theology that Christ had no real body. Um, So that's the point that he's making, but whether he's affirming a real presence doctrine of the Eucharist or whether he's simply repeating the biblical formula but actually has something like a memorialist conception in mind, the same argument could be given. Ignatius could be just as well a memorialist or a real presence guy and give exactly the same argument.
0: He's an ambiguous witness. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you wouldn't have any problem with some Christians holding one view and other Christians holding another view if that were the case, right?
1: No, of course not because I I don't think that there is a uniform theology among Christians ever, <laughs> let alone in in, in the <laughs> On first... anything. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think that there has ever been a uniform theology yeah. among Christians, so it doesn't bother me if there were. I just mean to say that Ignatius is not a, a slam dunk case as right, people take right, it.
0: Right. Right. And Irenaeus has been misunderstood uh, right. because he's been used as a, a proof text instead of considering his overall picture. So, uh Cyril of Jerusalem um who else is is very strong on the real presence uh, before John of Damascus? Any, any names uh, come to something. mind?
1: There's this guy, Edward Kilmartin. He has a book on the history of the Eucharist in the uh, Western Church. And he presents Ambrose and Augustine as sort of like two tendencies. Augustine has this more symbolic figurative bent to his language about the Eucharist. And Ambrose is sort of interpreted in more realist terms. So Ambrose of Milan would be an example of somebody who was taken as a kind of a, a realist about the Eucharist. Whereas Augustine is often more on the symbolic side. Mm-hmm. Very good.
0: Uh, all right. As we're just winding down, I, I'm just curious if you were in charge of a, a local local congregation of coordinating a, a celebration or memorial of Eucharist, what would it look like?
1: You know, that's a that's an interesting question. I've thought about this a lot. I will give two answers to your question. I'll give an answer that I think will be more palatable to the convictions of. The kind of people that listen to your podcast and then i'll give an answer that is more in tune with my actual way of thinking right now if i were to have a congregation of people who are you know very concerned about doctrine and about like exploring teaching and digging into it what i would do is i would have you know what i've been calling a jesus meal club we would get together uh, everybody would bring some small food item to contribute to the whole we would have maybe sing a song or two together we would read a passage of scripture together, we would, maybe there would be a short sort of sermon or discourse, like 15, 20 minutes. Then we would offer some like communal prayers for everybody. And then there would be prayers of Thanksgiving for the bread, for the wine, for Jesus salvation. And then we would sit down and eat and we would chat with each other and we would have a good time. And then at the very end, when the meal is over one more prayer, and then we all go our separate ways. That's basically what I would do. I would have basically the whole service. Everything is just around this meal. We all bring food together we sing some songs we listen to scripture being read there's a short discourse we offer some prayers and then we sit down and eat uh, and then we all eat the food together and share and you know uh, talk at the table and then once the meal is over we say another prayer and then we go home that's how i would do things but these days you know i think to myself like i don't care as much about doctrine anymore this these things are Just sources of endless debates. People can have their opinions, whatever, I don't care. The idea that I'm toying with in my mind, and I don't know that I would ever implement this actually, but this is something that I think would be interesting, is to literally all we have is like a room somewhere and a table uh, and people show up and they bring food items and then they just chat. We just talk, there's nothing to it. You know, maybe there's like a prayer of Thanksgiving at the very beginning. And then we all like eat some food. We talk to each other and it's just a place where you can go into a shared space with other people and talk to people and find out about each other and share your life stories. And it's just a place for interaction and for social connection. This would be less a Eucharist in the sense that they're, you know, except, you know, for that prayer at the very beginning, it would be more of a social hour, I think. So this would be like a really sort of a doctrine light social hour, but Sometimes I think to myself, like, there have to be places like that. Like, I, there are a lot of people who are lonely, who don't have anyone to talk to, who feel sort of on the outsides. Uh, And it would be nice if there were places where they could literally just go. And the whole point of this thing is to meet people and to talk to people and to encourage social relations. But this, again, is a more radical thing. I don't know if I would call that quite a Eucharist in any historical sense, because it's not like a, a ritual commemoration of Christ's death. It would, strictly speaking, be like a planned potluck hangout every week. So that would be a more a more radical sort of like extremely you know almost secular thing in the context of a church I think what would make more sense is the the Jesus meal club that I elaborated earlier but that that's I think is what it would look like
0: I had an experience just a few days ago where I was at an event and we we took communion together and I went up front to get the bread and the wine and I was confronted with I don't even know what to describe it as just this tiny little packaged Prepackaged ensemble uh, where it's yeah. like a, a cup and it has another compartment in it for the smallest little piece of a yeah, cracker yeah. that I've ever seen, and I was just like, "What? What is this?" And you know, you you open it and you just get a little tiny morsel out, and then there's grape juice on the other side, and I'm just like, "This doesn't, this doesn't feel like the real thing," you know. And I don't, I don't want to be too much of a purist because you know, in my own church we do have some folks that struggle with addiction, and uh, we do, in, in my church, we do make juice available as an option as well as wine, and people can mm-hmm. choose their own, you know, with the preference being for wine if you don't have any kind of substance issues, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you could speak to that at all, this, like, uh, I don't know, it's like a sterilized uh, version of it where it's it's not a meal, it's not even wine anymore.
1: I will say this because I've thought about this, that- I have some thoughts about this if you think that the point of the eucharist is to accomplish some sort of mystical union between you and christ and if you think that the connection between the bread and wine and Christ's body and blood is something that is totally imperceptible and just sort of like beyond material ordinary material connections then it doesn't matter how much you have you can have the smallest bit of bread and the smallest drop of wine the whole point is not what you're eating the whole point is This union that is affected between you and Christ. It's kind of magic. The whole point is for the magic to happen, and you don't need a lot of food for that. Now, what happens when you don't think that that magic is happening anymore? Why on earth would you still have the tiniest bit of bread and the tiniest bit of juice?
0: Because it's convenient. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I
1: I can understand why you would do that if it literally, if the whole point of this was not to eat. But for the memorialists, the whole point of it is precisely to eat. Right, that's the for the Didache. The whole point of it is precisely to eat. In Irenaeus, the whole point of it is precisely to eat. And so there is no reason. Like I think if you're a memorialist, there is no reason why it shouldn't be a proper meal. You can have moments in the meal, like so. It can have a sort of a structure. First, we'll pray for the wine. Then we'll pray for the bread. And then we'll all eat. And then at the end, we'll pray for in general. So you can have a sort of a structure to the meal. But if you're a memorialist, I think the whole point of it is a meal. Christ, when he sat down with people. He was not just like, all right, we're going to take the tiniest bit of bread. All right, we've had table fellowship. He sat down and ate with them, right? The the accusation brought against him was that he was a glutton and a drunkard. So Christ's whole purpose was eating. When they had the Last Supper, the purpose was to eat. When Paul complains in 1 Corinthians that people are going hungry and some are getting drunk at the the Lord's Supper, that means that they were getting together to eat. You can't, one person goes hungry and another person gets drunk, you know, on (laughs) what they serve in the evangelical churches, like the tiniest morsel, right? The whole point is to eat. In the Bible, the whole point is to eat in the earliest church, the whole point is to eat and just in memorialist theology in general, the whole point is to eat so as far as I'm concerned, there is no reason why you're a memorialist you should not have a proper meal now it's hard to coordinate these things
0: right, logistically difficult once you get over a hundred or two hundred people for sure right
1: there's a reason I think why these people would meet in people's houses. you cannot fit a hundred two hundred people into somebody's house. the nature of the meetings by themselves they demand to be small meetings, small groups right it has to be manageable and so I think that like Really what is happening is the expansion of the church, surrounding everybody around one teacher, this idea that we need to get as many people in here as possible to hear what the teacher has to say. This is like making changes on our liturgy necessarily, because now the liturgy is not enactable in our present context. I think that this is a tragedy. I think if you take memorialist theology seriously, you have to think that the whole point of it is just a meal. And if the whole point of it is just a meal, it cannot be like a 500-person potluck every Sunday. It has to be in small context. And so this pushes against the impulse to create a big church. Now, one alternative that you could do is to have the meal Sunday nights, right? So Sunday mornings, we all gather in the main building and we have our, our worship service. And then the meal is Sunday evenings. That's actually how the Christians would celebrate it, right? They would have an evening meal. And so you could have the evening meal, which is the Eucharist, Strictly speaking, proper, you could have that be in small groups in people's houses. Yeah. And then the big gathering could be Sunday mornings. There is not a Eucharist there, but it's teaching and worship and prayer and so on. So one, that's one other thing that you could do. But again, I want to insist that if you take memorialist theology seriously, the little piece of cracker and juice, that is not it. That's, that's, there is no reason for you to have that. The only reason that ever became popular is because they understood that it was not about a meal. It was about this magic happening between us and Jesus. And we just needed vehicles for the magic to take place. But once you get rid of the magic, you have to replace it with a meal.
0: Hmm. Some really great thoughts there. Thanks so much uh, for talking with me today, Stephen Nemesh. Any any final uh, statements, thoughts, opinions you'd like to throw out there by way of closing?
1: If you don't mind me engaging in a bit of self advertising, So this book on the Eucharist that I've written should be out by the end of this year or the beginning of next year. But I also have a book on Trinity and Incarnation where I I talk about the Catholic doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation. I critique them and then I present a reinterpretation of the New Testament presentation of Christ and his relation to his father. And so this book actually should be coming out relatively soon. I think it should be out before the end of this year.
0: And who's publishing that one?
1: Uh, Cascade, Whipped in That book should be of interest to your readers and if people want to, to buy it. There are not very many academic monographs that deal with the topics of Trinity and Incarnation from a sort of a critical perspective and then present an alternative point of view. You have books by you know non-Trinitarians or Unitarians, but there are no like academic monographs written by people with PhDs where like all of this is done in one book. This just doesn't exist. So this is what I wanted to do with this book. I wanted to have one book where I address the Orthodox doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation. I critique them. And then I also present an alternative case from the new Testament for a sort of a human low Christological understanding of Christ. So I think your listeners should be interested in that. And I, I hope that the book is useful to people and it should be out, like I said, towards the, towards the end of this year.
0: Very good. All right. Well, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Sean. Well,
0: that brings this episode to an end. What did you think? Come on over to Restitutio.org and find episode 507, Eating Christ's Flesh, part two, with Stephen Nemish, and leave your feedback there. On the YouTube version of this episode, we've been getting in some feedback there. Uh, someone named Transfigured wrote, shots fired. Of course, I know this is my good friend Sam, who presented on this very subject at the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, uh, and he presented a Real presence view. And so I'm not sure if Sam would want to uh, defend himself on this subject or if we could set up anything between him and Nemesh, uh, but I would be open to it. So we'll see if anything comes of that. Someone named Rose Sharon says, It was metaphor, not literal. The Logos was personified in the Gospels as a man. Eating his flesh was a metaphor for consuming the Father's living spoken word, his power, and so forth. Drinking his blood was to take in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pure metaphor. Glenn Fraser commented saying, I would argue that the wherever two or more are gathered in my name would support that memorialists should believe that Jesus is present in a memorial meal, if two or more are present at the meal. And he goes on from there. So definitely some interesting thoughts on the subject. And, you know, sorry, I didn't get to read out all the comments at full length but uh, certainly is an important subject for those of us who are practicing Christians and who experience communion or Eucharist on a regular basis. So I'd be also curious to hear what are your thoughts about his idea that if you're memorialist, you just flat out should eat this as a meal instead of tokens or symbols that are very small portions of the bread and the wine. So lots to think about there. That's going to be it for today. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can do that at our website, Restitudio.org. I'll catch you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.